love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. Hey, everyone. It's Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited about our guest, Dr. Narda Robinson. She is the founder and the CEO of CureCore, and she is here to talk to us today about using a holistic approach, an integrative medicine approach to behavior. Now, with integrative medicine, that's a healing-oriented medicine that takes account of the, the entire person, and in this case, the entire animal, so to speak. So it's much more common in human medication to take that integrative approach, but Dr. Robinson is here to share with us some information about how supplements in particular can be used as one of the many tools in the toolbox when addressing problematic behaviors in animals. So Dr. Robinson, thank you so very much for joining us today. And if you don't mind, I would love to give you the floor for a moment to talk a bit about your experience and kind of what made you decide to take this route and this path into holistic or integrative medicine and uh, just, just a little bit of information about your background in particular. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks. I'm happy to be here. I am originally an osteopathic physician. Well, I still am an osteopathic physician licensed to treat humans, and I have a small human practice as well as, um, so I graduated in 1988. And then in 1997, I became a veterinarian as well to expand my species. And I always wanted to treat animals anyways. So it was, it's, it's just nice to be able to work on both sides of that aisle. But yeah, originally I was interested in actually becoming a neurosurgeon in medical school and, uh, and enjoy the nervous system and just behavior and, and even psychopharmacology and, and just, just who we are as beings. But um, going the osteopathic route was my choice because it's a much more holistic, hands-on, uh, understanding the whole person kind of dynamic. But so I had still always wanted to work with animals. So once I became a veterinarian, I saw that there was a big deficiency in not only like an integrative and, you know, hands-on real, doing a really good examination of the patient kind of methodology, but also the, the holistic approaches that were available were, and, and there's still a lot of this around, you know, real kind of myth-based, uh, metaphysical, all that. And I felt, especially for animals, I don't want to hurt anybody anyways. I never want to hurt an animal either. And so rather than going on one's imagination or, you know, nebulous energies, I thought it was really crucial to approach holistic, which then became integrative as the term, um, approach integrative medicine from a scientific and evidence-based standpoint. And that, that took me on a different path than most of the other practitioners were doing at the time. And I got a lot of like negative feedback from that because I was somewhat of a heretic in that way. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but you know, it, it proves itself. I mean, even with the current COVID approach, it's like, we have to be science and evidence-based. We can't be working on belief systems because we see where that takes us. So same thing with integrative medicine, with, with herbs, with anxiety. I mean, there's, it's such a huge topic, even saying, Okay, treating anxiety in animals, what do we do? It, it embraces everything that, that I'm about, which is being a better diagnostician, being a science-oriented kind of practitioner, understanding where the animals are coming from and what specifically would work best for them. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and I agree. I think it's still kind of an up and coming idea and topic um, as far as integrative medicine and using a holistic approach. Um, and, but the, the one thing that 
really has my interest more than anything else is that, you know, I work with a lot of dog trainers and veterinarians and obviously owners and clients in the behavior world. And so many people are so afraid to go straight to um, a a psychopharmaceutical, you know, for example, to where they think it's going to completely change their dog's personality. And, you know, they're very worried about the effect because the psychopharmaceuticals tend to have, from my understanding, a much more um, uh, robust effect. You know, they, they tend to be a lot, much harder of hitters than say herbal supplements or other types of supplements might be probiotics, that kind of thing. So the thing that I like about introducing some of these supplements into behavior, especially with anxiety, like you had mentioned, is that oftentimes it can be a gateway or a pathway to kind of ease owners into this idea of putting something into their animal's body because they don't want to hurt their animals either. So I I really like that approach because sometimes they're much more comfortable at least exploring a supplement versus going straight to a psychopharmaceutical based on what their dog trainer has told them or, you know, what somebody else has told them, a friend, a neighbor, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, the, it, it's, it's such an enormous kind of idea to even approach this because what I want to do first, even before we get to drugs or supplements and, and for those that can see, I have my, my puppet here, but, um, but, (laughs) what I, what I want to do is understand why is the anxiety here? And, and I'm sure that that's what, what you guys want to do as well when we're approaching this um, therapeutically. But so just talking about why is the anxiety there? Um, that's why I like having a, a model here because what's, <laughs> what's going from nose to tail, like what is, what is the source of this? I know if we talk about a human, for example, okay, so if somebody came to my human practice and said, I'm anxious, can I do acupuncture or what can, herbs can I do for that? Like, well, let's talk about this. Why are you anxious? It, and so, and we can't talk about that directly to the animal, of course, but the person, we can watch them. Uh, we, we, we can talk to the person, we can watch the animal, but is the source pain? Is it nutritional? I mean, so there, there's all that too. Um, and that then requires a longer encounter than a five minute visit, um, ideally, that we are seeing more and more in both human and veterinary medicine. So, I mean, that that's where I like to narrow it down to, because even if we're going to go with supplements or herbs, each plant product has so many diverse active chemicals that how can we best tailor that plant product to the animal. But I always think too, um, I mean, yeah, we're, we're made of chemicals, but there's so much more. Like if we have pain, there's this physical aspect. And from an integrative approach, we could use a physical medicine to alleviate that problem that would be actually much more effective than drugs or herbs, because let's say we're, we have tightness in here, like with humans, we have neck pain, we have headaches, we can have migraines from that. If we directly address that restrictive muscle and fascia, um, that can eliminate the source of the problem because I never want to be just working as a band-aid approach. I want to get to the source and remove that. And, I mean, and then of course there's, there's everything in the environment, human or animal, so I think of the five senses, what's happening visually in your world? Um, you know, are you, especially with uh, animals in the hospital, are you under bright lights all the time? 
what what is happening you know so so many visual cues and things what are you seeing in your environment is there a television flashing or blaring all the time or what's the human interaction and i know that as behaviorists that that that's things that you think about but i think that the reflexive band-aidy approach can miss some of those things um, anxiety, what, what, what is coming into your nose, especially animals that have so much more, you know, olfactory capacity. Um, are you smelling cigarette smoke? Are you smelling, um, you know, Lysol all the time? What, what is sparking your anxiety because of you're getting these sensory cues? And if we talk about cannabidiol or valerian or hops or anything like that, why not? Let's figure out to the degree possible, what is what is upsetting you? Um, as, and as I said, I would say that to the human or try to derive that from the animal. Nutritionally, what's your diet like? Why are you uneasy? Do you have stomach pain? Do you have back pain? Um, you know, what what are you hearing all the time? Are you hearing a lot of fighting and discord in the house? So, so all that stuff, but pain is such an under-recognized problem in any species, I mean, human and the typical veterinary. Um, and so alleviating that is intrinsically curative. So. Yeah, that, and that's quite a checklist and it really gets people thinking. Like it's not just one simple thing. Oh, my dog is anxious because X. No, it could be X, Y, Z. And we're thinking A, B, C because of all these different changes in the environment. But yeah, thinking from their, their, all of their sensory input and all the stimulus that they're taking in um, to kind of run through that gamut of things and get a much better, well-rounded picture of the dog's entire environment and what, what is happening to that dog that could potentially cause some of these issues before having a method of action, before you know completing your behavior modification um, program or plan, so to speak, is getting that really nice, robustable picture to give you a better idea of what's going on with the dog in particular before choosing anything, really. Right, right, and and including um, you know just movement, which which is is also you know besides receiving kind, some kind of treatment, whether it's acupuncture, laser, what massage, herbs, or whatever, that that just I mean exercise is getting so much research attention as a way to fix the brain to to you know condition it, you know so regular moderate exercise versus you know dragging them behind you on a leash on a bike i mean there, there are just things that make me cringe where it's hard to go outside sometimes um but but anyway so so <laughs> properly informed um regular moderate exercise would be good and then that helps them just fix so many things. It's not just that exhausts them if, if, or it, you know, takes the edge off. It's like, it makes them feel better just like us when we get out. Right. So talking about covering the bases in particular, are you actually meeting your dog's needs and, and do your dog's needs differ from what your, your preconceived notion of what those needs are? Like, do those two things actually match? Um, and I, I love that you brought up pain as well in particular, because you know, animals can't tell us. They're so stoic in nature too. They're so reserved about their pain. I mean, obviously some have a higher pain tolerance than others and some are more dramatic about it and some are more reserved about it. But ultimately, um, we often don't know that our animals are truly in pain until the symptoms are so severe and they've been dealing with this for some time. So that's one of the first things that I will always ask about in particular too, is if someone says that it's, especially if it's an acute aggressive case or something like that is, have you had a full uh, exam? Have we had a neuro exam possibly, possibly to, to rule out pain as a factor? Because very often, at least in my practice, I see that that is, is 
an interesting contributor in many cases. <clears throat> well, right, right, and 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 so and so that's this other additional dimension of of some of my mission, uh, where I actually think med veterinary medical education needs to be um, reformed <laughs> in many ways, which which includes, uh, I mean, I mean, and that's like teaching the anatomy of of massage and acupuncture point when we're learning anatomy so that it brings it alive it's not just this muscle attaches from here to here but like what's what's the great stuff about that muscle what does it do what does it mean what is the significance when it, things go awry all those things but also so bringing that into the exam which is vastly undertaught in human and veterinary medicine so that means this hands-on exam which so you mentioned that we can't find pain until it's very severe. That's a failing of education because, and, and this is part of all the physical medicine integrative stuff I teach. We, and once, once I teach people it, they can see it. So even vets and vet students that bring their own animals to the course for us to use, it's like, okay, let's, let's look at your dog. And, and so here I have my model, but, but of course, we've seen animals, especially adoptions or, or whoever, they start to get this postural thing, like just like us, if we were like this all the time, I mean, you know, text neck and all that stuff. I mean, you can see the postural changes. And as we that so a hunched back like this, a neck that's down and won't go up, there are so many, so many manifestations of pain that once we are alerted to them, and I have this handout how to see a dog. So it's, it's like, go again, from nose to tail to toes, what are the changes in their posture that are reflecting pain problems? And then we touch them, we, we examine them with our hands, just like I would with a human. And you can find these spots. You can see that, oh, they look at you real fast or they yawn or, or they lick their lips or something. Once veterinarians would be better at examining with this hands-on approach, you, the, there's an encyclopedia of pain information here through our, through our eyes watching them, their movement, their posture, um, and what they don't want to do, like actively move their neck around rather than their neck being forced till they scream. I mean, there's just, there's so much non-invasive helpful stuff where we can partner with our clients and not be scary to our patients. So have a fear free approach and really learn what's going on with them. And so if we got better at finding and fixing pain, then that would solve all these other behavioral problems, litter box issues, uh, you know, fear, biting or whatever, because they've been hurt before maybe, and, and they don't want to be hurt again. And who hurt them? Well, did the veterinarian when they came in and they have the white coat and they, they push things around. So yeah, it's, it's, it's such everything when we talk about this. Yeah, definitely way more complex than it is simple. And that's important for owners, I think, to hear more than anything, because oftentimes owners get frustrated because they don't understand the complexity of things like behavior and pain. So getting as much information out there and taking the time to actually walk through this information with owners, I think, is, is just imperative so that they have at least some understanding of how complex an issue like any type of behavior could actually be. Right. So... Right. Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, and cats too, um, you know, well, my cat's hiding or my cat's old and my cat's mean, all these things. I mean, many cats have pain problems. And, and then once we understand that, then it's like, oh, your cat wasn't vindictive, wasn't this, that, or the other. Um, your cat was hurting. And that's how they, that's how they respond. They hide. 
Yeah. And you don't, and in hiding also, they're obviously not at the forefront of your attention and you don't see them as much and you might not be recognizing that because they're much more distant. And, and oftentimes I feel like humans go to a different reason for why they're mm-hmm. hiding or they're not visible or they're not seeking any attention. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and just, just to, to that, the other thought that's been in my head um, that I think that this human animal bond thing that once we begin educating people about their animal and why this is happening and and what's what's going into all their senses in their world then i think that that's a nice avenue for them to begin to realize what what's going on in my life as as this you know family member to this animal like what am i what's and it's like they sh- they would probably realize that affects me too with the fighting that I'm doing with my partner or or all this aggravation or just everything your animal is is that canary in the coal mine let's look at I mean and see then that's my yeah. that's my people thing too but it's it's important and that's where we have this one health thing and and ideally could bring more awareness about everybody's life and let's improve this for the dog oh, we're all feeling better now kind of thing. Yeah, that's a really excellent way to put it because coming from the veterinary side of things, you don't often take into um, into account the human component. What is going on in the human's house? And could that be dramatically affecting the dog as well? Uh, just like they talk about how, you know, pregnant women, if they're, you know, under enormous amounts of stress or they're in a combative household, that that actually affects the baby after they're born. Kind of the same thing in, in a dog's environment. You know, if two people are really having um, outbursts and arguments or there's a lot of stress or moving a new baby, any type of stressor really that's different. And and these various dynamics can have such an impact on an animal that a lot of times in in the veterinary, on the veterinary side of things, it doesn't even come into play or into question because we're, we're just not human focused, you know, we're animal focused. So it's hard to stop and think, wait a minute, what are the household dynamics and how could that potentially affect this animal's behavior as well? Well, right, right. And, and I think that, um, with the beauty of what's happening now with a, a scientific integrative medicine approach and a lot of the people that come through my courses they've maybe been to corporate medicine or, or whatever they've been in environments where they don't agree with the type of medicine being practiced or they want more time with their animal and they'll come they'll learn some these other techniques and they might set up a mobile practice or just a small little practice where they can spend an hour with people and their animals and all this stuff um so, so that, and that, and in so doing, you become very close with your clients and you get to know them. And especially when there's mobile practice and I know COVID puts a little kink in things, but that will come around too. And some people are still doing that, but you, as a mobile practitioner, you have this enormous window into, oh, this is the animal's life. These are the dogs that come charging through, or this is, I mean, it's, it's amazingly illuminating. Um, But then, so then, and just the other thing, as COVID and the financial crisis and people getting sick, leaving the household, evictions, all that, as that affects the human, of course, the animals, I think, feel it exponentially more because they are vulnerable to all kinds of hard things to talk about. And, um, And so now more than ever, I can see where animals would have anxiety as people would as well. And that's just affecting all of us so much. 
Yeah, I, I can say personally, I'm definitely seeing a spike in some owner-directed aggression. I'm seeing a spike in um, separation-related problems as people are starting to go back to somewhat normal of a schedule, mm-hmm. um, which I know is a smaller portion of the population. But I'm definitely seeing some some things that are uh, that I think, you know, my theory is related to kind of what's going on with quarantine and COVID for sure. Yeah, yeah. More so than before. So- yeah. And so I think it is helpful. I mean, so there's all the things we talked about, not to say that they're not important, but I understand that, okay, my dog's going crazy. There's not much else I can do about it right now. And of course we want to have this full understanding, but you know, what, what can help in a pinch as a maybe temporary bandaid until we can figure this out later. So, so I think that that's relevant. So, um, so we could talk about herbal considerations if if you'd like to move to that to focus. Yes, absolutely. I think that would be interesting. I'd especially like to hear what some of your go-tos are and kind of some of the situations that you would use those in, and then we can, we can get a little bit deeper into it from there. Okay. Yeah. So, so as I mentioned at the outset, I'm a scientifically based uh, practitioner and teacher. And so um, while common go-tos could include cannabidiol or cannabis related uh, products. So that, that is a whole conversation into itself. Um, and so, so, so and which brings in, which we don't have to go into, but there are certainly legal considerations. Um, there might be people's own bias against a cannabis derived product. The, but there are, cannabis gives a nice window into the whole thing about herbs, and supplements and regulations. And so lack of clinical understanding. The the good thing about cannabis is that even though it's still federally illegal, um, so when I say cannabis, that encompasses the whole spectrum. So we're not going to be giving animals medical marijuana, which has high levels of THC, which can produce toxic effects, even coma. Um, So anything that we would give to an animal or that a client would, uh, would have to have very, 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 very low amounts of THC, which would bring it into the hemp category, which in the US is less than uh, 0.3% on a dry matter basis. So, so, so there, is, there is that kind of FDA designation on what is hemp and what is marijuana, but they're all from the cannabis plants. It's just how they're grown will have different levels of THC versus cannabidiol, which is the non-intoxicating, um, very, um, very you know, much in abundance kind of cannabinoids. So, so the active chemicals in cannabis that people are interested in are the most populous ones, which are the THC, which we don't want in the animals and cannabidiol CBD. Um, but so, so even with that though, and even with the um, just huge amount of products that are out there and at gas stations that, you know, your supermarket, <laughs> everything, um, you know, the, the, the weird thing is that, of course, I mean, even for human cannabis, I mean, the legislation is so different from state to state, like Massachusetts just passed a law, you can get home delivery, like they're talking about Grubhub or whatever, home delivery of your cannabis. And this is your medical marijuana, I would think, um, or at least recreational uh, versus Pennsylvania, it's that you will get into big trouble for anything like that. So the same thing though, state to state with veterinary boards, um, some are like none of them to this moment 
as far as I know, have allowed veterinarians to prescribe it and sell it from their practice. It, across the board, you, you can't do that. Some are saying you can educate clients about cannabis, but, but still, um, and I mean, there's nothing that's in the veterinary world that's been FDA approved or, or all that. So, uh, but then there are states where veterinarians will tell me if I even mention it to my clients, I will lose my license. Mm. So it's that uneven. And so that really hampers a veterinarian's ability to confidently talk about it, as does for all herbs, the lack of um, research on each plant, plants in combination, uh, plants in combination with drugs, plants for various conditions, and what is the dose. And so it's it's unfortunate, but the reality that even in human herbal prescribing, for the most part, there is no rigorous information about dosing guidelines. And part of what complicates that further is that when you have any kind of, um, you know, a bottle of herbs or some dried herbs or whatever, well, well I can make, I, I can give you general ideas about it for each plant product in a jar or whatever it is, the, the active constituents are going to vary so much. Um, manufacturing varies. There is lack of oversight. Um, yes, we have the National Animal Supplement Council that can put a little sticker on there, but, um, but that just says, it, it just says in their mind, the company produced a quality product uh, if they've actually done any examination of that uh, manufacturing site. But, um, but that doesn't mean anything about the clinical effects. And if we get into Chinese herbs and somebody says, oh, I used blah, blah, blah. Well, a lot of the times, especially one of the main um, providers of Chinese herbs in veterinary medicine, they keep their formula a secret. And so you could say, okay, Chinese formulas typically have 10 to 14 or whatever number of different plant products. None of those have been ex has been examined specifically for non-humans, oftentimes not even for humans. And now you have 10 to 14 or however many. Um, sometimes there's herbal strychnine in there, which is obviously a neurotoxin. Sometimes herbal aconite, um, which is a cardiotoxin and neurotoxin. So, so when we lift the lid off of what the reality of herbal medicine is, um, and especially the concerns with veterinary medicine, uh, there, there's a lot to think about. And it's easier to just say, oh, I give St. John's Ward, for example, for my dog with separation anxiety. I give, um, you know, hops and valerian and passion flower and skullcap. I mean, these are common herbs that if, when I've gone into uh, like feed stores or whatever, just to get some teaching products and things to show people, I'll see all these or I'll get, or let's say choose with, um, you know, L-theanine in it, which is derivative from green tea. Um, I, I mean, typically you have to resort to looking at, at experimental animal, which I don't love looking at that research, but anyway, it provides some information or human research. So we don't have the information in the target species. Can they help? Yes, they can. Um, but we don't know how much because just like with cannabidiol, the research hasn't been done. So if we want to, as a veterinarian, confidently recommend something, there are big missing holes in there. And so 
to to move forward with those big missing gaps there um, and do so without hurting people or animals, then I, to me, full transparency is important. So here's, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. Um, and so in terms of the here's what we know, I, there are two resources that people could access because it's not just what I say, you know, in, in five minutes or 20 minutes or whatever, it's, it's what is the current information. And so when I teach my botanical medicine courses, I instruct people to download, there's two apps. There's one, it's called About Herbs. And that's from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And that's, that's, my, that's my all out favorite. Uh, and it's free for download and you know all these different platforms and you can, um, they have an online version too. You can, you can put in an herb name. So let's say Valerian, you put that in and it will get it for, for all the herbs that they talk about and some, some non-herb supplements, they'll have a, um, it's a for professionals or for consumers tab. So you can get the sciencey version or the more, you know, everyday person version. Um, and it will go through just some of the history, some of the mechanisms of action, um, the adverse effects, herb drug interactions, um, you know, so benefits and po positives and negatives. And the reason that things like that that are updated continually and are looking at the literature, the reason those are important, rather than asking the checkout man or woman at the feed store, I mean, it's going to be vastly different. Or if you go to a marijuana dispensary and you get your CBD laced dog biscuits or something, you know, you're asking somebody that not only typically does not have a human medical degree, they don't have any knowledge about veterinary. So, um, so if you do that, like for even for Valerian, um, it's astounding to see the number of drugs that it can interact with. Um, and how, oh, you shouldn't take this if you have liver or gallbladder or, you know, these other problems could, you know, worsen maybe pancreatitis. That in itself should be educational for professionals and the public to see, well, these are not just pretty little plants. These are plant drugs and they're plant drugs with um, inconsistent numbers of, you know, levels of active products in there. It's not like taking a carprofen or a, you know, fluoxetine or whatever, you, you're dealing with a lot of different um, active constituents plus potentially manufacturing problems or contaminants or adulterants with drugs, all these things. Um, just to, for completeness, the other, the other app that I like quite a bit is called Herb List, H-E-R-B, one word, and then List, L-I-S-T. And that's actually from the National Institutes of Health. And, um, and so, so they have their own kind of version of the About Herbs app. But just to talk about inconsistencies, and so these are just, these are the hindrances. This, so, so I could say, here's all these herbs for anxiety and they'll work really well and just give these to your animal. That would be misleading. And, but just, I can give you hints. This is what you should look at, but I'd like people to look these up themselves and, and talk with their healthcare professional about is this right for my animal? Um, and for example, if you look up Valerian on the NIH, National Institutes of Health, this is from their Integrative Medicine Resource, um, their write-up of Valerian is much less worrisome than that from the Memorial Sloan Cancer, um, Kettering Cancer Center. Um, 
And then to just make it a little bit animal related, if you go to like the ASPCA or certain animal poison databases and you look up something as seemingly innocuous as chamomile. So, you, you know, chamomile, I mean, for me, if I drink a cup of chamomile tea, I mean, I just, I get so sleepy at, because of the neuropharmacologic changes that it does. Um, it's, it's not that worrisome to me based on what I see as its chemical nature. I mean, yeah, we have to be careful to an extent, but it's not a red flag. This is going to kill somebody. If you look that up on some of these animal poison databases, they'll say it's, it's poisonous, it's toxic, should not be given to animals. And so, well, should a dog who might need help sleeping, should they have a little bit of chamomile tea in their water or should they not? These are the challenges that we face. Um, so that being said, the one more thing I would like to say as a caveat thing is St. John's wort, people have to be so incredibly careful with that. Um, that is the that is the poster child, so to speak, of a plant that will cause significant herb drug interactions. And what it does just briefly is it accelerates the clearance or the breakdown of other products that come to the liver for processing. And so it means that drugs that you take with it will be rendered ineffective or much less effective. It matters just how much, how, how much of the levels there are in comparison. For example, as a human idea, this should drive home the point that women that are on oral contraceptives that may experience depression and take some St. John's wort, they may find themselves pregnant where they, they really didn't have to become pregnant, but the St. John's wort will inactivate, will assist the liver in just gobbling up those oral contraceptives, meaning, yeah, you yes. might not as well have taken it. And so, um, and so it's to that degree that we have to be really careful with these herbs. And that's why people and healthcare professionals should know about these two resources, the About Herbs app and the Herb List, but the About Herbs app is gonna tell you a lot more. Um, and, uh, and see what you're actually getting because this information is updated continually. I will put both of those resources in the show notes below too. So I'll put the Great. about herbs link and the herb link, uh, the herb list link so that everybody can go straight to that. Um, so there's no confusion as to which site it might be. I always want to make sure that people are going to the exact site that you're recommending. So Wonderful. I'll definitely put those in the show notes below. And um, you bring up a really excellent point. I, one of my major concerns that I have with dog owners in particular is taking um, supplementation into their own hands without discussing it with a veterinarian. They saw something on a Facebook group and you mentioned the St. John's Ward. And that um, I've seen a number of times where people are like, I'm just going to give this and I'm just going to give that because they have this idea in their head that because it's an herbal supplement, a supplement that it's completely benign, you know, that, oh, what's the harm in it? It's just, you know, it's something that's natural. It's not a synthetic drug. It will be perfectly fine. And there are contraindications. And, and you gave such a great example about, um, you know, the breakdown in the liver and how that can kind of block the effect of other medications that are on board. And I think that's very much overlooked because people have a completely different idea about herbal supplements um, and that they can just be given with anything. They're completely benign. They're not going to affect anything. So I can't stress enough how important it is for people to talk about everything with their primary veterinary um, physician before onboarding any type of herbal supplements on their own. Um, but one thing I want to switch back to too. So 
You mentioned confidence when it comes to talking about um, like CBD oil and that sort of thing. And I will say in the state of North Carolina, I think the veterinarians here are pretty, there isn't any legislation that keeps them from doing so. You know, their, their licenses aren't um, uh, in jeopardy if they do discuss that with clients. But from my perspective, I've talked with several practitioners here about it, and they're very hesitant and non-confident about it because of the lack of research, like you mentioned. And because one of the reasons I've seen, too, that they've given me is that the dosages are all over the map. So if they are trying to help a client that has come in and asked about um, supplementing their dog with a CBD oil that they found at one of the local pet stores or online, um, they have zero idea what dosage to actually begin with or to start with. So I did want to ask you that for veterinarians out there that are, are trying to help their client through something like that to at least experiment with it. I was I was in this position at one point with my my old dog that has intervertebral disc disease. But where can they start? What, what, what is kind of your go to with dosages as far as CBD oil goes? And do you have any go to specific um, products that, you know, are more reliable because there is such a lack of regulation? Is there is there a starting point for practitioners that want to try to help? their clients that are asking them about this as a potential experimental use for their animals? Yeah, all good questions. Um, so so I think with, with any herb in general, um, but you hear it oftentimes related to CBD is start low and go slow. Um, and so the range of doses that you can find are like 0.1 mg per kg, so milligram per kilogram. So you do it on a body weight basis um, up to like eight or 10 or something like that. And so, um, you know, the, the, the interesting, so just a few things like, um, again, my, my idea for evolving veterinary medical education is that the unfortunate piece is that unless that primary care vet has had a science-based integrative medicine education at least following vet school, they will they could be as uninformed or more or more uninformed, so less informed than even the client who's maybe been looking it up on. You know, I, I don't think Google's all bad. They say Doctor Google, but it's like, well, that's where human practitioner. That's where the healthcare practitioners often get information. It's just like, what, what's your critical um, view on it? How how do you sort the useful from the non-useful? Um, so. So that's, that's a problem is we need to get science-based herbal education out to veterinarians as well, because people want to know it. Um, the other thing is regarding research is that fortunately, because of this grassroots, so to speak, swell of interest in cannabis, um, there's more research on cannabidiol in veterinary medicine than there is on any other herbal compound. And so, now I, I might just ask, so just as, as you were talking about, like, so the, so as of 2019, it, it looks like the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, um, which relates somehow to the Veterinary Medical Board. I, I don't know that vets, it says at this time, no vet in North Carolina can legally prescribe CBD for their patients. Um, so, so, but things are always shifting. And even when I was working with, Colorado State University as a faculty member on these this leading edge of cannabis research, um, the lawyers would talk to the FDA to try to get some information. What What is our role? What can we do? So everything, it was hard to get good information and reliable information that was the same from time to time. 
always very challenging, but cannabidiol at least has, um, has some evidence coming out for something like epilepsy. And we know that anxiety will worsen seizure disorders. And one of the early papers that I worked on my colleagues with was anxiety was one of the leading things that people were using cannabidiol for. So, so there's a, um, there's a historical basis for it, but um, anyway, so where would you, where would you start? Well, so that's where, what product are we using? Do can you get a certificate of analysis for that product? So even if I say, even if you're not going to count out milligrams per kilogram, um, is milligrams of CBD on the label? Uh, can can you give like one little drop? <laughs> you start there. Is it going to be an extract? Is it going to be a capsule? Uh, whatever it is, even if it was Boswellia or anything, I always want to start with a low dose. So that start low and go slow, and then you titrate up to effect. Um, but the the unevenness of hemp-based products from which we get cannabidiol is some will have what they call the entourage effect. They'll have, it's a whole plant extract. So it has terpenes and flavonoids as well as cannabinoids. And there might be eight or 10 or more in there. Um, and so, so that's where it gets back to well, what does this animal need? If it has um, certain terpenes like limonene in it, which is the same thing we get in orange peel, it's in citruses, citrus fruits, that's more awakening. So would we want that for an animal with anxiety? Not if we could have the choice to have have a preparation that had more linalool, which is the same. It, it's one of the same terpenes that something like lavender shares. And you know, as far as part as, as far as my um, go-to herbs things, it's like well, I might say in certain instances that lavender aromatherapy might work. Of course, then sometimes clients go overboard with that and it's like putting it on their paws and their ears. Um, so, so anyways, but from a hemp product, if I saw the full complement of all the constituents in it, I'd sway possibly towards one with the, the terpenes that are more calming rather than exciting and awakening. So anyway, that's the complexity of doing good cannabinoid medicine is that that I I sort I I am less into you know ideally in the future when we can really really educate people about the whole spectrum of stuff that's in there instead of just a go-to product it's like even if you went to a go-to product what's in there and what are they touting so as the products that are out there, I think that this one Elvet has done a good amount of research, more research than most of the other products out there. So E-L-L-E-V-E-T. Not that I have anything to do financially with anybody that's across the board. I stay away from financial obligations like that and that would taint my recommendations. Um, but since they have done research, one study was started at Cornell before that was shut down and that was more on um, pain, but then we get into, you know, the even pain osteoarthritis, it's still a nervous system thing. And it can still, it's like, well, I can't get up and go to the bathroom that causes me anxiety. I mean, it's like <laughs> anytime you have pain, yes, there's gonna be anxiety for any number of reasons, uh, it seems like. But, um, but so they have a study on that. And then Colorado State did a study on, it was more of a local product, but always I want to know what's in it. What bothers me is anytime, and uh, 
LVET has listed this, even though a rep has said, no, they're not proprietary. Once you see proprietary on the label, that means they're not disclosing everything. That means there's a trade secret. And that's what gets me about certain lines of Chinese serves. Anything, I like in, in the AVMA ethics says veterinarians should not prescribe things with secret ingredients in it. Well, okay, so what do we do with proprietary or secret levels of ingredients? I need to know in any herbal formula, how much of it, an herb that will thin the blood is in there? Is that like a lot of ginseng or is it maybe a little, or ginseng, ginkgo, garlic, ginger, all those, the four Gs will, will predispose an animal to bleeding by interfering with platelets or doing something else. So yeah, if you go to surgery then, or you get spayed or you get something else done and you're bleeding unexpectedly, and cause that maybe even you haven't told the vet or the vet hasn't asked or doesn't know what a huge amount of ginseng or ginger or whatever will give you. It's like you're putting animals lives at risk. Um, and then, um, yeah. And so, so even back to something like St. John's where I know I'm kind of switching topics, but you combine that with Prozac, you can get serotonin sy syndrome, uh, central serotonin syndrome. Um, and so, you know, it, it would be so much shorter to say here, clients should use this, 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 and this. Um, but you see the complexity. It's more complex pharmacologically than using medications. Is it safer? Yeah, I mean, I would prefer to see an animal actually on CBD than I would on a, um, a prescription medication. And why is that? Because I can titrate it. Because most of the time, there's not going to be huge red flags in it um, that, that will cause animal death. Uh, even if there's, there's, I don't know, it's just, I think that even given these unknowns, that there are big problems with drugs as well, and there are interactions with drugs and drugs or drugs and herbs. Um, so, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, thunderstorm anxiety um, has been a big one that people have used CBD for. And, and the good thing about that is because it does work on so many different neurotransmitter systems, uh, it actually is showing value for pain. And so if we compare something like cannabidiol to a psychoactive medication that, that may or may not have pain effects, but here we're getting a broad spectrum of neuropharmacologic influences that can help the animals in many ways. What are the downsides? Yeah, it can change liver enzymes. We don't understand how what's going on with the liver over time. Is that going to be a problem? Um, it, how, how do these drugs or plant drugs affect animals over time? Not known, but to get the edge off, I think my, my go-to thing would be cannabidiol. A, a hemp extract actually with not just straight cannabidiol, but a, a spectrum. Gotcha. Based on the, <clears throat> based on those terpenes that you're talking about, whether you need something kind of more calming or more awakening in particular. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem is um, in veterinary medicine, you, you often don't get to choose like human cannabinoid practitioners, especially that are using medical marijuana as, to prescribe. I mean, you can talk about strains. You can know which strains of plants have more of this terpene and more of that terpene. Unfortunately, we get bottles of stuff and and yes, if we can look at the certificate of analysis, that would be nice. It's, it's just like, well, I like this product because it, it's company supports research. We know more about it. 
then this, that, and the other versus maybe this local company that claims this. Is this certificate of analysis legitimate because there are fraudulent certificates of analysis, of course. Um, but we're much more hampered by what we get. But I think that I think something like LBET and the feedback that I'm getting from from my students as well that are using it a lot in animals. I mean, that at least seems like, okay, probably this one is is on the on the good shelf here. And we'll you know, use that. And and there, you know, there are some others that are out there too, but transparency is really important to me. But with herbs, it's harder because it's not patentable so much. So companies like to keep a little secret here and there. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I want to ask about is kind of coupling or using um, herbs as a kind of a catalyst or in conjunction with other medications. From a behavior perspective, kind of like you were talking about earlier, we look at the whole picture. So we look at their nutrition, we look at their pain score, we look at their lab work to make sure there aren't any inconsistencies in the blood from prior lab work that could, that could, you know, send us a signal as to why we're seeing some behavior changes. But to me, there's always multiple tools in the toolbox. So we do things that are going to modify their behavior directly based on how we interact with the animal. There might be medications on board. There might be pain meds on board. There's all these different things that we put together to oftentimes alter a behavior, a frustrating behavior, or decrease the anxiety or stress level in an animal. So when it comes to um, using an herbal uh, supplement um, as a catalyst or in combination with a psychopharmaceutical or behavior modification plan, are there um, specific combinations that you do like? You mentioned serotonin syndrome earlier, and, and that's a really big concern for me because again, with people putting their dogs on supplements and not telling their veterinarians about it, and they're already on you know, Prozac because that's kind of one of those big go-to drugs. Um, what are some combinations that you see that you like and what are some combinations to completely stay away from, would you say? I, I don't think we have enough research or, or information to, to, to give a confident answer on that. Um, but I think given the near ubiquity of hemp extracts and cannabidiol um, supplements, that that is going to be a real common one that gets introduced. Um, so, so because there's always going to be those concerns, especially if you look on the About Herbs app, of you got to know which drug or drugs they are already on and which detoxification pathways they work through. Because I only mentioned one thing with the liver, it's, it's the cytochrome P450 system, um, but there are multiple ways that the body handles drugs or foreign substances in there. So, so to really give an informed response to that is like, what are the drugs? What pathways do they use for detoxification? What, what does the body use to detoxify them and eliminate them? And then how does the herb or herbs, how do they interfere with that or make them more? Because you can increase the side effects of the drugs by adding in those herbs and stuff like that. So, um, but I think as an example, when we see like the research on seizures that was done at CSU, uh, these animals would come in oftentimes with multiple anti-epileptic drugs um, that were not working sufficiently. And so they didn't take them off of those. They just added the cannabidiol extract in with them and clinically didn't see a lot of changes. And so so that's how I think that this would work in practice is because we have so many unknowns, we can either be hampered by it and do nothing, 
or if it comes up, then we can add in slowly this herb. And I think cannabidiol is one of the, the safest ones given what we know so far. Um, and see how are things changing. Uh, even when we do this with acupuncture or something else, it's like watch the animal. And when can we start to back off of the drugs? Because if we're gonna say, and I, I would be in this camp that an herbal approach, well-informed, well-overseen could be something that could be pref preferable to just drugs or a combo approach, let's say that. Let's, let's add this in slowly, be very vigilant Let's have the patient in in four weeks or six weeks. Let's watch the blood work. Let's see how the liver is doing. Um, let's see if there are any platelet or other abnormalities going on there. And then say, okay, um, it, is this a point where we maybe feel comfortable to back up on the dose of the drugs? It, as, and as we are doing behavioral or, or other modifications. And yeah, I mentioned lavender aromatherapy. I mean, just to see anatomically how big the olfactory bulbs are, which do the smell in dogs. I mean, like huge compared to a human, which is this. So their sensitivity to that is so huge, but also maybe playing relaxing music, very, very simple, slow. All these things are happening. How can we back off the drugs? So it's kind of a, let's watch and see how this works if there are no clear contraindications to adding that herb right at the outset. But that's pretty much how it, it would work, um, I think, safely. Gotcha. Yeah, that's actually really helpful. Um, and I want to ask you, too, when we're talking about using combinations of things, I quite frequently... Um, oftentimes we'll ask uh, an owner if I'm working with their veterinarian or working with them on a behavior modification to also talk to the veterinarian about considering probiotics. What's your take on some of the probiotic strains that are available for anxiety or do you kind of get into that as well? I haven't personally gotten into like the different strains. Um, but yeah, the, the gut being, as some people call it the second brain, um, <laughs> that, that all that's going on with that microbiota is very important. Um, so I, but I haven't looked at the research into which strain affects which mood and, and kind of disorder and, and things like that, but something definitely to consider. Um, but also the quality of the food and it's into all that nutritional stuff and, and what's really good for our animals versus what's convenient for us to give them out of a bag because Dried kibble was a, a thing out of the mid 1900s because people were going to work and they just wanted something easy to put in the dog bowl. Super convenient. Yep. Yeah. But I think we are seeing a shift. I mean, I feed my dogs fresh food. I love Nom Nom. I put them on that. And um, I, I feel like there are so many other fresh food options and, you know, mm -hmm. rehydration options available now that there's almost this swing back in the direction of going away from kibble. You know, raw in particular is coming back, which scares the heck out of me to be perfectly honest, but, um, yeah, there's, I, I, am getting a lot of feedback about, um, you know, people being more concerned about what they're actually putting in their dog's bodies at this point. And from a behavior perspective, that's one of the first things that I ask people about what protein are they on? You know, what is the digestibility of the ingredients that are in that food that you're giving your dog? And, you know, are they getting a well-rounded diet or there, is there anything missing from their diet that could potentially contribute to some of the issues that you're seeing? And, um, 
yeah, so I, I think that's that's pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, I was curious about your your thoughts on on probiotics because I oftentimes will, will recommend that they at least for something like bifida, um, uh, bifida bacteria longum, you know, because that's used in like calming care and um, you know talking about some of the ones that will actually reach the end gut and how that can kind of balance the brain. And I'm, I'm just stoking up as much of that research as possible. But it still mm-hmm. seems that think you know it's again it's kind of one of those things that. It leans in the direction of it being a catalyst to some of these things. There aren't many contraindications, so it seems to be pretty safe. But yeah, I'm just curious to your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a, a wonderful approach. Plus, um, plus, I, I think adding in more fiber, more, more plant aspects to it just to, to bulk things up. And I mean, there's there's neurophysiologic aspects of that. And just, I don't know, um, cats too, that that they need fiber in their diet or they get constipated and that's anxiety producing and, um, or, or with hairballs and all this stuff. So yeah, I, I see the, the evolution in veterinary nutrition. I think it's going in a good direction. Um, you can't still, uh, add any CBD to animal feed products. That's a, an illegal thing, but anyway, yeah, that's aside. Excellent. Um, well, is there anything else that you want to add in particular for people, either dog owners in particular, cat owners in particular, or practitioners that are interested in kind of exploring more of the integrative uh, medicine approach or the holistic approach for some of their patients? Any education that you recommend if you've got some upcoming CE um, that would kind of help steer them on that path to maybe learn a little bit more, not only for their own personal pets, but from a practitioner standpoint for clients that ask them. Because I, I at least in my practice, as far as, as a behavior professional, um, have seen an increase in people asking about these different things. And of course, I defer them to professionals on that because that's that's not my field of expertise, at, nor, sh- nor should I be referring them to that. But um, what is kind of your suggestion for people, either owners or practitioners that want to learn more about these things and get really good, solid information to help them move in that direction? Yeah, well, so full disclosure, I mean, that's what I do. I, I teach. That's my full time thing. And um, from scientific perspective. So there are a range of courses out there. What I what I would guard people against is anything that does invoke like energies, food energies, herbal energies, because we don't have to live in that atmosphere <laughs> at all. And, and, and anymore, um, we can understand the science. So, um, I mean, I do have some, some webinars. I have one on anxiety uh, as a free webinar that was recorded on our YouTube channel for curacore.org, uh, C-U-R-A-C-O-R-E.org. Um, but, but yeah, I have a whole range of courses for veterinarians and veterinary technicians. I think that veterinary technicians and nurses um, that blend it are important um, professionals that could serve as an interface between vets and clients and just kind of give that additional information. You could have somebody that would focus on that specifically in a clinic, whether they're also doing rehab and um, and just intakes and all that. But uh, but still from a science perspective. So yeah, I have, I have botanical, uh, medicine courses. I have one just on cannabis. That's 20 hours. Uh, but, but my, my vision again, for the overhaul of just the practitioner part of veterinary medicine is that we should be able to include integrative medicine options again, from a scientific perspective as first line care that side by side with drugs and surgery and whatever needs to happen, but to be able to give an animal, a massage that's coming in for uh, back pain or disease disease or postoperatively to provide 
um, acupuncture as a as a pain medicine uh, adjunct after trauma or or whenever it is. Um, so I think that really there are five pieces. There's the botanical. There's integrative rehabilitation not necessarily post-operatively, but if somebody comes in with a lameness, there's all kinds of rehab medicine, physical medicine things we can do, including acupuncture and laser therapy and massage. Um, but anyway, yeah, so the, the five pieces, acupuncture, massage, uh, light medicine, which is laser therapy and, or LEDs, um, integrative rehabilitation and botanicals, that, that as we empower practitioners with those five avenues of a science-based integrative medicine approach that you can then see, okay, this animal has, let's say dry eye, what, what can I use pharmaceutically? What can I also use acupuncture wise to stimulate tear production? Uh, what can we give the client as home uh, care massage techniques or, or using light medicine at various acupuncture points. So the home LED device, whatever. Um, there's so much that can be done to empower people to work with and on behalf of their animals, they don't have to feel terrorized that, oh, my dog is lame. So then I need this expensive, highly invasive TPLO procedure, cut up their bone and reposition it. Here's all the other things you can try before that. You know, and with, with behavior too, um, there's so many things to do. And in so doing, we partner with our clients, we, we give them knowledge that they can use every day at home. We give them techniques they can employ with their animals, strengthen the human animal bond. Um, and on the practitioner side, we reduce depression and burnout, suicide, because people that I find, I mean, after 20 years of teaching, over 20 years of teaching this, that they come to us, they're fed up with whatever's going on, even if they're fresh out of school. And you learn these techniques that call upon you as a person from the heart and you strengthen connections. They're just fun to practice and they're so effective. And now we have so much science to back them up that they really should be offered right alongside everything else and let clients choose what they need. That's huge. It really puts the human back and the reason back into what you're doing. Obviously, veterinarians don't go into practice because they're going to make big bucks and you know, they're going to be buying yachts and sailing off around the world. Like They go into it because it's a practice of the heart and they want to help and they want to heal. And yeah, I feel like they can get oftentimes and, and technicians, veterinary nurses, they're all they're all the same and they all fall into this category as well to where it's so easy to get burnt out because it's the same thing over and over again. <clears throat> you don't necessarily get the full picture. You don't have that human component. Oftentimes you have to put that aside to be able to do your job. So to look at this from a broad perspective and a huge perspective and a human perspective and integrate some of these different things, I think could really be beneficial to the human psyche for, for the technicians and the nurses and the doctors that are involved. Um, to really feel like they're making a difference and they're doing everything that they can for their patient, which again is why they they started this journey to begin with. So hopefully that can help kind of recenter people and give give some new hope and in, in practice as well, for sure. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I will and definitely go ahead. Sorry. Oh well, um, there was just a, an inter couple of pieces out in today's veterinary business. Um, one was I did an interview along with Robin Downing about the business aspects of integrative medicine. And so, um, and another one was with my good friend, Mike Petty on how to integrate these things, so to speak, um, into your practice. So I think that a misconception for veterinarians is that, oh, I have to sell my soul to corporate because I'm in so much debt. It's like, if you actually look at what, what you could earn on your own as a solo or small small practice person without all this other overhead and you're just doing these techniques it's it's comparable or more so you don't 
So I think you can be very financially successful. And, and you've uh, many times my graduates are looking for more veterinarians because people are seeing the value of these techniques and they want them. And it's, it's really burgeoning. Um, so, so, and, and, and then just to the one health aspect, that's the three components. There's the human veterinary and planetary. So to do herbal medicine, uh, all this, we need the planet to survive for us to survive. And then human and veterinary, it, it's all involved. It's, it's, unless it's a, you know, a bird in a forest somewhere that doesn't have any <laughs> human contact, they still, you still need the health of the planet, but the most of us, we're all bonded. And so it's the full picture. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. This has been incredibly helpful and I um, have been taking notes the whole time. So I'm going to put some notes um, below to kind of recap some things and also provide the resources that you mentioned throughout our talk together. Um, I'm going to put information about how to uh, get in touch with you on your website as well. So if people want to take advantage of some of these amazing courses that you offer and really kind of um, deepen their knowledge base when it comes to utilizing uh, um, uh, integrated medicine and uh, a kind of holistic approaches with supplements and and what to do and what not to do. So I'm going to chalk the show notes full of uh, full of information that you've mentioned throughout this so that they can access those resources too. Um, and if you don't mind, keep a keep an eye out on the the YouTube videos. So if people are throwing in questions that I probably am not qualified to answer, if you want to tackle those, you are welcome to. But um, yeah. thank you so very very much for. Uh, joining me today and providing such a wealth of information and knowledge from your expertise in this field. I, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I'm, I love answering questions, so I'll be in touch. Excellent. Thank you so much. You too.